Now, for our scripture reading, we're going to be looking at uh, Mark 4, verses 35 to 41. And you'll find that scripture also as an insert uh, in your bulletin. Uh, Mark uh, chapter 4. And I'll begin reading with verse 35 to the end of the chapter. Let us hear the word of God. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. And he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, some of you may remember when I first got here in October, and we began a series in Jonah. The very second sermon was about the subject of, um, well, about fearing God. It was also, that text was also about a, a ship in the, the Mediterranean Sea going through a great storm. The people were fearing for their lives. And yet what came out of that story was not so much about the fear of the sea, of the storm itself, but a greater fear. It's the same type of fear that will be gripping the disciples in our story today. So let's take a look at it again, and I'm going to just begin again with the opening uh, two verses. Now on that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now we know from the, from the first verse, actually, of this chapter, that it, Jesus had been on the shore by the Sea of Galilee, and he'd been teaching, looks like, all day. And there was such a large crowd, and they're kind of pressing in on him. He actually got into a boat just off the shore, and, and he taught from there. Okay. So he's had this long day of preaching. Uh, the evening is coming, and he tells his disciples, let's just simply go from here, and you're going to go uh, across the, uh, the lake where he's going to do teaching at another place. Okay. So this is all fine. At least four of the disciples we know were experienced fishermen on that very lake. Okay. They know how to handle a boat. They know how to handle this lake. But something goes wrong. In verse 37, we're told, a great windstorm arose. Now, I've been told that out here on, on this lake, it can get rather stormy and it can be dangerous if you're out there. But that was particularly true of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee was surrounded mostly by hills, and the sea itself was at 600 feet below sea level. And there are some places there, a couple of places in particular, where you've got gaps between the hills, and a wind will come down there suddenly, 
can catch boaters off guard and, and can cause uh, the boats to sink. And we got this case here now. We have these experienced boaters, uh, such as John and, and Peter and his brothers, and they have lost control of the situation. And so we are co- we're told, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Well, let's get a clear picture on what's happening here. Okay, the, the exclamation here, the disciples, they're making something very clear. And it's that the boat is not merely in danger of, of collapsing or being in peril. The sinking of the boat has begun. Okay? The boat is filling up with water. Soon it's going to be going under the lake. And there is nothing more that they can do. And the storm shows no sign of letting up. And you can imagine that the disciples, you know, nerves and bodies are, are stretched to the breaking point. They're facing death. And their rabbi, their teacher, is sleeping. Okay? Now, all this sounds familiar to those of you who are, you know, here for the Jonah series. You know, there you had the mariners. They were at their wit's end. They're trying to save the ship. They've lost hope themselves or calling on their gods. And meanwhile, there's Jonah sleeping down in the inner part of the ship. But it's even worse here. Here we've got a small boat. Okay, It's not a ship. It's probably holding more than the legal limit for passengers. And whereas Jonah's ship was, it was in danger of sinking, it wasn't actually sinking yet. Here, the boat has begun to fill up with water. But even more incredible is Jesus sleeping. Okay, Now, Jonah, he slept in a sea-tall ship, but he was down in a dry area deep down in that ship. Okay, Jesus is at the stern of a boat. He must be soaking with water. The, The wind is tossing all about him. And so you can, you can imagine the astonishment and the utter frustration of the disciples. Their teacher is sleeping, okay? He's not sharing in the trial with them. He's not praying. He's not up there, men, you know, offering up encouragement. He's not showing any kind of leadership or, or sympathy. He's sleeping. And so they're asking... Do you not care? I mean, it's one thing to be tired. Okay. You've, you've been preaching all day. I mean, I get tired after preaching a half hour. You know, he's, he's been doing that all day. But this is ridiculous. I mean, you've got to put, it, put Jesus into perspective. Jesus is a man of God. Okay. He's a teacher. He's even a prophet from God. He's proven himself to be from God by his... By his miraculous healings, and he's been casting out demons, and you know all the signs are starting to point to him. You know this might be the long-awaited Messiah. But drowning is not part of the script, okay? Not for him, and not for his devoted disciples. And so they say, "We're perishing." Now the disciples know about trials. They know that prophets of God they, they do face persecution. But this is not persecution, okay? 
the boat is sinking into the water. They're going under. And Jesus is oblivious to the danger. Again, you know, he's not up there saying, be calm, men. Have faith. God will see us through. He is sleeping. Did I mention that Jesus is sleeping? You know? And somehow, somehow they get him awake. A storm can't do it. I don't know what they do, shake him or whatever, but they finally wake him up. So in verse 39, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I mean, what a a gloriously terrifying, dramatic, hilarious scene. I mean, Jesus wakes up. The, The wind is howling. The boat's tossing in the water. A wave's coming over. Maybe it's just splashed him in the face. Maybe that's how he woke up. And then, kind of like a dad who's, you know, Saturday morning, he's wants to sleep late and all of a sudden the kids come into the room and they're running around and they're screaming and he tells, he, just like the dad would say, you know, be quiet. Jesus gets up and says, just cut it out. And it does. It just stops. And then, and then the next statement by Jesus, it, it, just, it just takes the cake. What, what are you so afraid about? Yeah. What's going on? Now, the word that's used here for afraid, it's, it's the same word we would use for like, what are you faint-hearted about? Or, you know, what it, why are you being a scaredy cat? What, what's going on here? It, it's, it's the same kind of thing that, that I feel if I come across a, a, a snake in front of me or, or, a, a, or a big lightning storm, you know, passes overhead and it cracks. You know, it's that kind of danger, that kind of fear that the disciples are fearing. And Jesus is saying, why are you scared about this storm? What do you feel danger about? And and then if that's not enough, he adds this little little needling comment. Have you still no faith? Now I tell you, there are times when I read the stories in the gospel that I, it's just so hard to have sympathy with the disciples. They just, just don't seem to get it. For example, you know, there's one time Jesus miraculously feeds a few thousand people. And, uh, and then another time, he's going to do it again. And the disciples say, but, but Jesus, where are you going to get the food? I don't know how you're going to do this. And, you know, you, you just, they just don't get it. But, but here, you just got to feel for the disciples. I mean, I would have wanted to say to Jesus, really? Really, Lord, you really don't know why we would have been afraid? Have you noticed that the boat is half filled with water? And you're, you're, you're getting at us about not having faith? Did I mention? You were sleeping during all of this time. So how did the disciples reply? I mean, do they say this kind of stuff? Do they object to his scolding? Or, or maybe did, do they just thank him? <laughs> thank you for saving us. Maybe do some high fives, you know, give a big cheer for being their hero. You know, same like, boy, you got us that time, but we, you know, we knew you could do it. You were just, you know, you're just fooling us all along. Well, verse 41 tells us what they, how they responded. And they were filled with great 
fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were filled with great fear. Here's how it literally reads. They were terrified with great fear. The, the word is, is phobos, where we get phobia. Okay? That's the word for fear. And it's in both of those words. We're being terrified in, in, in this great fear. Mark's tr- trying to come up with the strongest language that he can, he can use to express what's going on inside of those disciples, that fear that has gripped them. Okay? It's not the same word that was used just a little bit before about being afraid of the storm. They're not feeling cowardly as one feels, you know, of being in the presence of danger, though you might say that they were unnerved. Let me spend a little bit of time with this because it's hard to kind of catch it. I'm going to read a a, a quote here. It's a little bit extended quote, but it'll help us with this. It's it's from C.S. Lewis, and he wrote this in his book, The The Problem of Pain, and he's trying to, to get us to understand this term of fear. Suppose you, you were told there was a tiger in the next room. You, you would know that you were in danger and you would probably feel fear. But if you were told there is a ghost in the next room and believed it, you would feel indeed what is often called fear, but of a different kind. It would not be based on the knowledge of danger, For no one is primarily afraid of what a ghost may do to him, but of the mere fact that it is a ghost. It is uncanny rather than dangerous. And the special kind of fear it excites might be called dread. Now suppose that you were told simply there is a mighty spirit in the room and believed it. Your feelings would then be even less like the mere fear of danger, but but the disturbance would be profound. You would feel wonder and a certain shrinking. Now, Lewis is describing a term that's called numinous. He's trying to get a a handle on that, but it's the same thing about the fear. You, You know you're in the presence of someone who's not merely greater than you, but who is altogether different from you. It's the fear that human characters feel in the Bible. You know, when they're visited by angels, the angels always have to say, do not fear, be calm. You remember the reaction of the shepherds to the angel when the angel came and announced the birth of Jesus. It's the exact same terms that are being used here, the Greek terms, when it says, and they were sore afraid. They were filled with great fear. So why are the disciples possessed with such fear? Well, they say why. Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Now that word obey, that's the key word here. Notice they're not saying who is this that possesses such great power, such, such skill. Now, you and I, we've witnessed feats of exceptional people. And, you know, we just go, wow, they, they, they have this ability. Maybe, you know, those of us who like sports and we see something that an athlete's able to do and we're just amazed by it. Or, or we might be amazed by someone with their powers of, of intellect. And we're just 
wow, they can just think great ideas and invent such things. And, and we're amazed by that. The people who amaze me the most are, are illusionists, the, the magicians, who, who will acknowledge they have no magical powers. And all the more go, wow, how are they actually doing that and, and not using magic? But again, that is not what has unnerved the disciples. They fearfully marvel the authority of Jesus. See, that's what it's about. Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea, they obey him. You see, Jesus did not stand up. And we were, as far as we know, he didn't kind of wave his hands about. He didn't speak an incantation. He didn't even pray. He just gives a command. Stop it. And he was obeyed. The guy who explains it best was a Roman centurion. And he had sent uh, servants to, to go to Jesus. He, he had had a servant who was, uh, who was dying. And uh, Jesus said, okay, yeah. He offered to come to the house to heal the servant. But the centurion replied this way. He said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Even Jesus was marveled at this man's faith. Not because he had a large amount of faith, but because he had knowledgeable he understood, to a degree anyhow, who Jesus was, how he's able to heal, not by power, but by authority. Creation has to obey the Creator. Okay? That's what he understood. Now, the disciples probably did not catch on at that time when they were there with that centurion, but they're face to face with it now. Their teacher is, well, he's more than a teacher. He's more than a godly man. He's more than a a man from God. He's even more than what they had been understanding of what that anointed one, that Messiah who is to come. They're asking the right question. Who is this who acts as though he is the creator? And that's what unnerves them. And grips them with fear. So let's leave the disciples now in their terrifying fear. And let's turn to ourselves. And, and I've got four lessons or applications that we can, can make here. First of all, it is this. That the Lord neither slumbers nor sleeps. And there's a psalm I often read whenever I, I go to the hospital and someone is facing surgery and is about to be going under sedation. And it's Psalm 121. And I read it for, particularly for this comforting thought. It's in verses 3 and 4. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And there might be times in which our Lord seems to be asleep precisely in the midst of peril. We are to know that our Lord neither slumbers nor sleeps. 
Now, Jesus may have appeared to be oblivious to his disciples' peril and that of his own. And, and I can't, you know, I can't get inside of Jesus. I don't know really what's all going on. Was he actually sleeping? Was he just appearing to be? But what I do know is this, that neither he nor his disciples were perishing. However much the circumstance may have indicated otherwise, the disciples could have been in no safer place than in that boat because Jesus was in that boat with them. Now, whether he would have awoken at the nick of time or or perhaps just his his father would have commanded the wind to stop, however it would have played out, that boat was not going to sink. Our God neither slumbers nor sleeps, and it is our God who keeps us. Now, one might say, and they'd be correct, that Christians, but Christians do die. They even drown. They face the same tragedies as unbelievers face. They can even, as we have learned, they can even be beheaded. That's true. But they cannot perish. No tragedy can befall us, no death can overtake us, but that our Lord holds us in his hands. He keeps the flame from destroying us. He leads us through the waters onto the eternal shores of his everlasting kingdom. He neither slumbers nor sleeps, but rather he brings us through the sleep of death into everlasting life. Now the second thing that we can learn this. All of us, at some time or another, either we've said it or we have wanted to say it. Don't you care? Don't you care, Lord? Don't you care that we are perishing? Don't you care about our pain, our heartache, that, that things are falling all around us? Well, yes. Your Lord cares far more than you can know. God the Father cares so much that he sent his son for you. And you who are are fathers and mothers, you know what sacrifice that was. And you can only guess what compassion could move the father to pay such a cause. Really, I mean, who among us would do the same? And God the Son cares so much that he would let nothing keep him from the cross. And he knew of the storm that would someday break upon him. He knew of the drowning that he would experience upon the cross. He knew that he would go through a baptism of water and that was going to come to him. He would undergo such a storm because his disciples and many more like them and like us were as sleeping men and women oblivious to the storm around us. I mean, really, there are more storms around us than we know. And even as, cra- as waves are crashing over us and our boats are filling with water, we kind of move about as in, in a dream, thinking everything's okay. I got a, enough savings put aside. I've had a good health report. Things are okay. We've planned the right way. Life seems to be going according to our plan. But then something happens. And it puts our safety and our happiness in peril. And we ask God, don't you care? Aren't you paying attention to what's, to what's going on? Well, sometimes it is precisely because he cares that he upsets our boats. 
We were in danger. Danger of forgetting that it is, is God, not us, who is in control of our lives, in control of storms and, and, of, and of clear skies. We forget to give glory to God for both the good and even the trouble that comes our way. We, we forget that the good and the trouble both are serving to test our faith and to make it pure. Yes, God, God knows. He's not sleeping. He's not in slumber. And he does care. And then we come to the primary lessons of this passage. Why, why Mark is really has included this. What's happening here? And I'll present in, in a couple of questions. And the first is this. We've already addressed it a little bit, but again, what is it to fear the Lord? As I said, we've already touched on this point. And if you can remember back to to October in that Jonah series, we had addressed the subject then when we were kind of considering that reaction of of Jonah's mariners. They also feared the Lord. And we noted how it it can also be translated worship, that they were hand in hand, almost synonyms. The Old Testament, and it's a difficult subject for us, well, for a couple of reasons, but it never would have been for the people of Israel, or really for anyone in the ancient world. You see, the Old Testament speaks of fearing God much, much more than loving God. In fact, it celebrates the fear of God. It's not that they did not love God, but because fear in God, as they understood it, encompassed love. While at the same time, it's honoring God for being God the Creator and God the King, God who is the Holy One. To fear God is to acknowledge that God is not like us. It is to regard God not as the you know, the, the old man upstairs, but as the great ruler who has complete claim on us. And that we come into his presence, or we, we ought to, as subjects would come before their great king. Now it's hard, again, it's hard for us to, get a, to grasp the, the idea, I think for at least a couple of reasons I can come up with. One is that, is that we're Americans. And we bow to no ruler. We are no one's subjects. The authorities that are over us, they work for us. And they possess no power, but that we allot to them. Which is good. This this is great. This is one of the great things about being Americans. And even then, when we come into the presence of dignitaries, whoever they might be, and we might be excited to meet them, but we do, are not in reverential awe of them. And indeed, what we really like about them is particularly if they treat us as, hey, as just the same. Okay. So it, it's just tough for us to have this understanding that those in the ancient world would have just what it is to come into the presence of a king. But another reason is what has become the dominant feature of our culture and we even bring it into, uh, into worship. And that's just, the, it's the casual nature of our culture. The informality that is pretty much pushed out altogether. Uh, formality, okay? Every occasion, 
is an informal occasion. And it carries over into the worship of God. I mean, worship, you know, gosh, churches that I've been into in particular, it's just another informal activity of, of celebration, kind of like a spiritual birthday party you go to. Because the primary importance that now dominates the churches of our age is everybody must feel comfortable. Keep everybody comfortable. Keep everybody cheerful. Have a feeling that they've had a good time so that they will come back. Now look, the gospel is worth celebrating. Okay? Worship needs to be a celebration. And because of our brother, Jesus Christ, we now know the great God, the great King, as our Father. But it's, it's worth thinking about sometime. And I'm not going to go too much more into this, but to ask, can we ever reclaim and experience God, what it's like to be in his presence, so that if we were, I mean, we really understood it, we might fear like the disciples feared before Jesus in that boat, or the mariners before, their, before God on their ship, or, or those shepherds before the angels in the sky? Are we missing something? Because we have made God just so comfortable to be around. Can we even understand the writer of the Hebrews, what he was saying in, in chapter 12, in verses 28-29, he, he says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It's worth thinking about and meditating on. And then the final lesson in application, that final question, which is what Mark really wants us to ask ourselves. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Who is he to us, first of all, who profess him as, as Savior and Lord? I mean, how well do we really know him? The disciples thought they knew him. Goodness, they, they lived with him until he commanded the wind and the sea. And then they're asking Who is this guy? And we're thankful to Jesus for saving us. But when we look at the cross, has it ever occurred to us, when we look at that cross, to fear him? To fear him in the sense of of realizing that there on that cross is, is one who is the creator. The one who created us. He's up there on that cross. And then to others, anyone who may be here, you know, you regard Jesus as a good man, maybe, maybe even the best man ever to live. Will you stop there? Will you not acknowledge him to be who he presented himself to be? Will you hold back? You know, you try to play it safe. You know, you, you come to worship, you do the, the right things, but you're not going to give yourself over to it. Well, then understand that you're not playing it safe. You're keeping back from submitting to your Creator, who is the King and the Judge over men's hearts. Who is this? It's the most important 
question you will ever answer. And a non-answer, by the way, is an answer. It is one with the greatest consequences because it's eternal consequences. So don't keep putting the question off. Your creator awaits an answer. Let's pray. Our great God, we do give you praise and praise with, with fear and trembling. The God of the universe who created us came and took on our very flesh, lived among his, cre- his creatures. Our great God who is eternal lived a life here on this earth in a single space of time. Our great God who, who created us, who has command over all of us, who is eternal, yet he died on a cross. Who is this? Who is this that commands the the stars of billions of light years away, who commands all that exists, all of creation, who's working all things out according to his own plan, because he is present everywhere and has all power. Who is this that hung on a cross? We give you thanks, our God, that even now we know that we can't fully come to, to grips with it, fully understand it. We thank you for that faith that you have given to us. That allows us to profess this Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and our Savior. Whether we have large faith or small faith, whatever size it may be, it doesn't matter because we are in his hands. His, his, his strength can never be broken. And he holds us so that as he has promised us, We who believe in him will never, will never perish. In his name we pray. Amen.